physicists have sought deep and wide for an explanation of the universe, which does not include the postulate of a divine being, an intelligent designer who created and will complete all things. One solution is the multiverse, the idea that the universe is really only one of many options out there, that there are other universes that have spun off this one, or perhaps our universe is a spin-off of the primary universe, or what is the primary... Well, you get the idea. But what if you could travel between these universes? What if there was a means to explore alternative universes, which bear some small semblance to our own? What if you could not only travel through the universes, but in different universes at different times so that you could experience some part of the past? And what if you got lost? Well, you'd need the skin map to find your way back. Welcome to Lie Speaking Truth. This is episode 8, a podcast on the intersection of faith and fiction. I'm your host, Roy Askins, and with me as always is Chris Gillespie. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. Our contact information, you can get a hold of us uh, by email at talkback at liespeakingtruth.org. Uh, please also leave comments on the website. Uh, check out the, the uh, posts on the website and comment on those. You can also get a hold of us on our Facebook page. Uh, do If you'd like to support the podcast, please use the links we have in the show notes for uh, the books to purchase the books. We greatly appreciate that. We get a, s- a small kickback from that. Uh, so do use the links to purchase your books. Uh, if you are interested in supporting us further, uh, do check out the possibilities of doing that on our schedule page. Ground rules. First off, there will be spoilers in this book. If you haven't read the book, please do so. Uh, we will give away the ending of the book. Uh, we will be talking just a little bit about the next one. Uh, not a whole lot because Chris has it and he wants to read it now. But uh, just a warning, there will be spoilers uh, for the first one, The Skin Map. Uh, secondly, we're not reading Christian themes into non-Christian books. Our our goal here is to talk about the themes of these books from a Christian perspective uh, and to kind of put these into, into Christian thought and how to think and understand them. So we're teasing out the underlying themes of these books uh, without necessarily reading Christianity into them. And to do this, we have two books that we use, as always, uh, Dr. Gene Edward Veith's uh, reading Between the Lines, and James W. Sire's The Universe Next Door. If you haven't purchased those, please do that. Uh, they're fantastic books that'll help you uh, kind of uh, put some framework around some of the uh, books that you're reading and will read here on uh, with us on Lies Speaking Truth. Our book for today that we'll be covering is The Skin Map, a Bright Empires novel by Stephen R. Lawhead. This is the first volume in a uh, continued series. Of volumes. I don't think he's announced how many volumes at this point. There's only two. For some reason, I wanted to say like I had heard five. Yeah, it definitely is not a trilogy book. No, Uh, and he specifically said series too. Yeah, this first it's written like a serial uh, novel, Uh, so that I mean, even the chapters themselves have headings before them to kind of tell you what's going to happen in the chapter. (laughs) So leading you along, you don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but you kind of already had an idea where it's going. Uh, the main idea behind the story is that uh, our universe is not the only universe. There are so-called, what we might call parallel universes or multiple universes that are similar and yet different, that choices are made that cause uh, variation between those universes. Uh, and this is all what's called, according to characters in the book, the Omniverse. Uh, but there are different levels of these universes, and you can actually travel between them. There's uh, ley lines which are these uh, landmarks throughout our world and their worlds that indicate uh, where the or where you can travel or how you can travel and actually different ley lines 
uh, have landmarks that indicate where you can go and at what time, too. So you have all those various options, not only uh, where, uh, but when and in which universe. The vast number of locations. Imagine, then, to travel between all these places uh, would be incredibly difficult uh, and somewhat random, although a character we are introduced to in the book has done the work and uh, describes it as uh, like like the train system, the subway system in, in London. Uh, very complicated, many junctions, places where you can go up and down, uh, in and out, left and right to get the idea. Multiple levels. Yeah, multiple levels, uh, which it truly is. I mean, you keep going deeper and deeper. You can't imagine you can get into a subway that's below all the other subway trains that you've ridden on, but you do. Uh, it goes quite deep into the ground. Right. And that's how this omniverse is structured, too. At least that's the closest parallel they can give us. Uh, the explorer who, did, who went over all these things um, uh, did a good amount of the discovering of how this works and, of course, discovered uh, the goal and <laughs> where we want to go, which the goal, of course, is uh, important of the book and will be for the whole series, I'm sure. Uh, he mapped this on his skin using tattoos. So that's why the book's called The Skin Map. His name was Arthur Flinders Petrier. I, I, that's how I pronounced it. I thought it was French. But for, for those who might have both volumes, there's an actual excellent introduction to the second volume with a list of all the important people. One of the things that gets kind of confusing with all the different characters floating around. And if you go to the second volume, uh, page XI, Roman numeral 11, there's a great list of uh, characters. Right. One of the issues that we might have with this particular book, at least covering it for our show, is that uh, it very much functioned like uh, Hunger Games, mm. where we hadn't read the second book, so we didn't know exactly you know, where he was going. The first book was a complete story, but not really a satisfying conclusion. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I, honestly, I thought, having read the second volume of this one, I thought the conclusion to... The Hunger Games was much more satisfying the conclusion to this book. Right, exactly. So it was similar, but this was even weaker yet. Yeah. I think, you know, it's not it's not terribly clear the direction that he intends to go right. uh, with the series. So what, what this is all leading up to say is that the first volume of the book does uh, spend a great deal of time introducing um, the characters and... Uh, their discovery of these ley lines and how how to travel amongst them or or how they work and and really building uh, the antagonist you know and his character which is uh, uh, Burley Lord Burley and then he has his Burley men uh, who are his uh, henchmen if you like I believe it's Archelaus Burley or Burley yeah Earl of yeah, Sutherland Archelaus. that's a good name I like exactly. Ar- Archelaus. Yeah, Archelaus, and he's an earl, too, which is nice. Uh, He's looking for the skin map, uh, specifically to find what? Well, I I don't know that anybody really knows except Arthur Flinders Petrier. And uh, I believe, uh, I mean, Arthur identifies it as the Well of Souls. And uh, Mm -hmm. and I believe uh, there's one portion of the story where he takes, his wife dies, and he's not very clear on this, but he takes his wife uh, to to the Well of Souls. Right. Well, in the first book, that's it. Yeah, that's all you know. Yeah, that's the that's your last encounter with him. Right. Uh, although there's nonlinear time in the book too that Lord Burley has already uh, perhaps skinned him. And that's one of the the struggles of this book is is the uh, nonlinear time. 
uh, is, is I'm still trying to ravel it out. Even having read the second volume, I'm still trying to ravel out the nonlinear time thing. Right, which doesn't bother me. And it certainly reflects the nature of ley line travel, mm-hmm. which is nonlinear. Sure, sure. So they're jumping around and affecting time in the future first, and then going back to the past and affecting it there but, for their advantage. But at the, in the same future. time, realizing that none of the they're not really traveling in time per se. They're traveling. It seemed to me the way I understood it is they were traveling along different. Basically, it was all like there was still one basic timeline, and it was all along the same point in the timeline. It's just they were traveling to various universes that were in different periods of periods of their progression. So there was a, another. A parallel universe that, while it was 2000 and whatever, like 12 this time, it was 1666 in that parallel universe. Uh, and they right. weren't necessarily traveling in time. They're traveling through different universes that are, are that have progressed differently along the, the original timeline or at a different point in their d- development on the timeline. So, I mean, it's not, and he even says that, it's not time travel. They're not moving back and forth in time. They're moving before, between various levels of the omniverse. Correct. So that's kind of the point of the book. <laughs> Let's find the skin map and then get to the Well of Souls. Uh, but that's not really what drives the plot. <laughs> what really drives the plot in the book is, is setting up for the remainder of the series. Like, really, I mean, when, when I finished it, I, was, I really had the, the impression that it was one massive intro. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, I, I felt really actually kind of a bit disappointed in it, uh, personally. Um, but you could see, like you mentioned, and it really didn't dawn on me until you said it, but you could see he was really trying hard to set up Archelaus Burleigh. Uh, and he also did a really good job of setting up Wilhelmina as well as, right. a, as a major character. Ironically, Kit, one of the, I mean, the main character, doesn't really receive much development. Uh, this is getting into our discussion as book as art, but Kit doesn't change much throughout the novel. He's kind of a bumbling idiot at the beginning, and he's still a bumbling idiot at the end, right? Right. Uh, I mean, he has to get rescued by Wilhelmina uh, at the end, otherwise he dies in the uh, in the Pharaoh's tomb. Right. Uh, and there's really no like change, dynamic change in his character. Wilhelmina, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. She goes from uh, from this. Uh, you know, he describes her on page 29 as the Undertaker's anemic daughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought that was a good description. Uh, and uh, she's not an exciting or vigorous person. Uh, she's just kind of uh, plain, boring, uh, but she hangs out with Kit. So that's why he, he, he hangs out with her. Vilhelmina is Kit's uh, girlfriend. Right. Well, she's she is an unbeliever, though. Uh, at the very beginning, Right. And I don't even think that she quite understands uh, what's going on with her whole coffee enterprise there in uh, Prague. She certainly hasn't been warned about the consequences, you know, of introducing this foreign substance in a different way of the timeline. She kind of acts naively, and she's being brought into it, uh, starting to see its advantage by the end of the book. Whereas Kit, you know, he seems to just kind of accept it from the get-go, naturally. Mm -hmm. Well, just as he can travel naturally. Right. You know, but he, has, he, he, the, he has the intuitive sense of where these lines lay, even. Right. But at the same time, you could say, uh, and, and this will show up in the second book, but she figures it out a lot quicker than he does <laughs> in right. terms of, of determining how to do it. Like, he does it naturally, but he does it without any direction. Like he has no concept of where he's going, when or why or what time. Right. Whereas she, she learns 
uh, in fact, teaches herself how to do all this sort of stuff. Uh, as you can see, because she rescues uh, Kit at the very end using this ley line travel, and then gives him very specific directions on how to get to uh, how to do uh, get to the next point in, that he's supposed to be at. So, so Wilhelmina changes very much uh, from a not so likable, unhappy, plain person to the daring heroine at the end. Right. Uh, but uh, and then and then of course I think uh, Burley he did a pretty good job I thought of, of putting together Burley as a character. Uh, yeah, he's villainous. Yeah, especially the the favorite kind of villain, where it seems uh, that he can play both sides of the coin. He can be the mm-hmm. the perfect gentleman, you know, mm-hmm. and and just the horrible psychopath. But let's talk about uh, the multiverse a little bit, don't you think? Sure, sounds good. I mean, we talked about it some, but but uh, he he the author does give us in his uh, a little essay at his conclusion after the book is over to explain. Uh, kind of the genesis of the book, where he got the idea, uh, which he's done in, in his other books too. You know, the the inspiration comes from his travels throughout, you know, the English countryside. And here he's this in this case he's at Stonehenge, um, and he observes these people doing a strange dance with their hands in the air, and he observes them again at other locations too throughout England, uh, and begins to wonder what this is. Someone tells him, I don't remember what he says in the essay, uh, that the that they're trying to feel uh, for the ley lines, which are energy, a telluric energy that they can feel. And uh, Yeah, his friend said to him, they're New Agers searching for ley lines. See how they wiggle their fingers? They're trying to pick up the energy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, he, in the book he actually calls it the Omniverse, but I think he's, I mean, so you have a couple things going on. Uh, He's got really kind of two themes here. One is the idea of ley lines, and the other is the idea of the multiverse. Uh, are you familiar with the physical con- the concept in physics of the multiverse? Uh, no. So, once again, the, the, the multiverse, as best as my layperson understanding of it can be, is... Uh, that uh, is the idea. It comes from the idea of string theory, uh, which is also physics, uh, and, and that there are various universes being spun off of ours at any time, any given point in time, and there are tons and tons of various options uh, regarding the multiverse and the uh, and the universes. That there are all sorts of various universes out there, and I, like I said, I really don't know much about it. But the reason I posit it is to kind of uh, examine this idea in light of, of uh, a Christian thought, you know, what do Christians think about something like, you know, multiple universes or, uh-huh. you know, is this, is this consistent with a Christian worldview uh, yeah. with, with a, uh, a, a theistic as James W. Sire would say worldview. And uh, I'm inclined to say no, personally, uh, Largely because, as Christians, we believe that we, or as as human beings, we believe that God has made us unique, right? And to have mm-hmm. this whole range of various options out there, a whole range of various universes, I, I, each of which work out in their own way and in their own method and means, uh, uh, it kind of seems to defeat the uniqueness of, of this one universe and this one particular uh, existence. Not to mention the fact, just... Uh, just uh, logically, it's kind of well. I mean, 
it's it's unnecessary, right? We have no way of of observing these things. It's like the the spaghetti monster theory, right? That mm-hmm. uh, that I believe in in the spaghetti monster god who lives just ten miles out of the furthest uh, telescope that we have, and every time we invent a telescope powerful enough to reach him, he moves out another ten miles from that furthest range. And what he desires is that we all spread the love in this world by by making lots and lots of spaghetti for everybody, and that anybody who's not making spaghetti for somebody else should uh, be put to death. Well, okay, how do you prove it? <laughs> right. right? And yep. the fact is, you can't prove it. And it's the same thing with this this string theory. Uh, the, they have no way of actually observing it. They have no way of proving it. They have no way of uh, of making any determination on it. It's 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 useless speech. Useless speech. Yeah. No theories are interesting. Um, you know, I I've had uh, people ask me about. Uh, well, do you believe in aliens? You know, can there be aliens? I said, well, you could theorize that there is aliens, and you might even in your theory of those aliens might be able to. Uh, use that theory to explain certain phenomena that you've observed, you know, like uh, you know, f- flashing lights moving at odd in odd ways in the sky, or uh, little green men that look deformed, or whatever it is. But it's still a theory, you know, until you have authentic proof, right? Right. And that's why I say, well, who's seen these eight little green men? Well, people have seen them. I said, yeah, but have they given you proof? You know, have they have they brought the body forward and let it be examined by? You know the the world of opinion. Mm-hmm. No, uh, these these lights. I mean, where where is the documentation apart in uh, what is it? The grocery store tabloid. Well, and and the point where this becomes interesting and related to our book is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think Stephen R. Law had kind of uh, puts his work out there as semi-Christian in some fashion, mm-hmm. like. A, like yeah. a sort of semi-Christian fantasy, and and he's fascinated by these idea of these ley lines and these travel between the universe, and and to me, the, I mean, the whole concept seems uh, kind of uh, foreign to the way a Christian, and and I'm not questioning his Christianity in any way. It just seems foreign to the way a Christian would perceive the world, um, at least in the way his his, his essays and the epilogue in both of the books seem to talk, it seemed to be that he places more credence in those things than I, I find particularly helpful. What, what, what bothers you is that if it's going to make, if he's going to make a pretense of it being at least having Christianity as a subset to it, or in the, in the, in the subtext, it, it is challenging to do that and keep the setting in our setting. If the essays hadn't been there in the book, I wouldn't have had a problem with it, more than likely. Because what he's doing with the essay is he's saying, look, this has a foundation in reality. And the fact of the matter is, like, I mean, of course he's saying it's a fiction story, and he he says very clearly this is a fiction story, but what if it were true? What if, you know, and and he talks about how these scientists have done these various studies and whatnot on these these, uh, ley lines and Mm -hmm. and various studies and these various theories. Uh, But by doing that, he gives a certain credence that it wouldn't have if it was just a work of pure work of fiction. Right. You actually don't need to identify um, the connections to reality because we know know Stonehenge exists. We know that that there are these these strange lines that cross the countrysides. You know, why are these things, why, why that particular path was chosen? You know, to, for uh, for a Roman road, for example, we know these things. But at least we they they sound believable to us. So you don't have to go into the whole scientific or or observable stuff with a with a um, you know not nonfiction essay at the end. There's actually a really neat diagram on uh, on the Wikipedia page for ley lines. 
Okay. Uh, where they have 137 random points where they find alignments between these various points. And the fact of the matter is, what they're pointing to is the fact that just because there are so many holy sites in England, it's absolutely, it's, it's actually, it would be surprising if there weren't ley lines or lines of, of connection between these various uh, holy sites and holy points that basically, you know, you can't go from one town to another without crossing some sort of holy site. And it would be a shock if there weren't some sort of correlation between these. And that's kind of the next point is is the discussion of ley lines and where where what a, what a ley line is. It, it's kind of been used by um, some of the the New Agers, as as he mentions uh, in his essay at the end of the book, to talk about various energies of the uh, in in the in the in the uh, in the earth, uh, and and it comes from uh, supposedly various activities uh, under the. Uh, the, the crust of the earth, I guess, or some sort of thing like that. And he tries mm-hmm. to give us some sort of pseudoscientific uh, background, but um, but mostly it's used in some kind of neo-pagan uh, New Age uh, uh, searching for energies in the earth. Uh, you know, one of the questions in the book, and, and you know, what he's trying to force us to struggle struggle with is this question of what uh, what do you know? Is, how do you know what you see is real? Or is there something behind it that you that you can observe or that you you don't understand that actually is what is real? Uh, and you get this with uh, with our main character. Well, I don't even know if we can call him our main character, Kit. But he's, seen, he's the initial char- main character, anyway. <laughs> and, he, he is the main character. He uh, he picks up again at the on the, the yeah he does pick book. up at the end. Uh, but anyway, Kit uh, after he's he's met his grandfather Cosimo. Uh, and then Cosmo introduces him to to Henry. Uh, what's Henry's last name? Sir Henry Faith. Yeah, Sir Henry Lord Faith of Castlemaine. He has initially introduced him to him. He gets into this this uh, appointed coach with the with the uh, the horses and the clip clops and the whole deal. Uh, and as soon as he gets in, he thinks uh, none of this is real. He says this thought led inevitably to a third thought. You've fallen and you've struck your head on a rock, and when you wake up in a hospital, three weeks will have passed, and you will be on a ventilator with tubes up your nose and wires attached to your broken cranium. That was surely a safer explanation than the one where he was forced to admit that what was happening to him was in some way really happening. Still, weren't those horses a lovely sight? So, so you're right. I mean, he, unlike Philhelmina, he doesn't really grasp. This is this is pretty. Well, this is about a quarter of the way in the book. He still hasn't really grasped what's going on. He's willing to play along with it, mm-hmm. but he's willing to say he's also, you know, kind of unwilling to say that it is real. It, it may just all be a figment of his imagination. It's it's so uh, fantastical. I think honestly, I don't think it's really. I don't think it's real to him until the end when. He sees his great grandfather Cosimo lying in the uh, in the tomb. Dead. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that's when it becomes real to him. Well, and there, there's a truth in that. Yeah, I mean, you, you've had this experience. You tell people that they're going to die. Um, you tell it to young people. You tell it to your catechumens, who are you know preteen or teenager, and they just kind of look at you like, "Yeah, right. That couldn't happen to me. It's not going to happen to me." Uh, and but then when they're faced with with their deceased relative in the in the coffin, um, they're they're faced with that choice. They could be just like uh, like Kit, 
either just imagine that it's all a figment of, of you know, their imagination or actually say this is real. It's really happened. Yeah. Well, I, I think uh, even more so in today's culture, I don't think they really understand the death until they have a death of someone who is young in this, like mm. in the school, if somebody's young dies, mm-hmm. or if a close friend dies. I, I think looking at the deceased grandmother or grandfather, in some sense, actually perpetuates the uh, false notion that it can't happen to me, right? Because oh, they, yeah. they associate death with something that's with an old person, right? And I'm not old yet, so I'm good. Right. But you see this when, when like, the 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 jock is racing around in a car drunk or something and he dies or whoever. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful stereotype. Um, then all of a sudden they're faced with death and they start to ask questions. Uh, but I think you're right. It's it's when death uh, when death confronts you that you uh, that you begin to think twice. Right. And I think the same goes for evil too. It's not just death, but I mean, I say, well, is there anything truly evil? You know, people say, oh, you know, everything's mostly harmless, right? Mm-hmm. But in, in the book, you kind of uh, uh, the author is pretty good about leading us, leading us to believe uh, that there is true evil uh, by introducing uh, Lord Burley. And I'm going to say it's Lord Burley because his men are called Burley men. Um, you know that they, they they truly are uh, a law unto themselves. Cosmo says, "Best avoided mm-hmm. by any and all. They fear neither God nor man, and are each one as treacherous as their leader." Mayhem is their natural inclination, and murder is their second nature. Um, so we, you know, we get that right up, right up front. Cruel as the night is long, they are false-hearted friends who wish no one well. Even the best of them would not hesitate to sell their mothers to the devil for tuppence. They are as cunning and devious as they are relentless. All the more so if they think you have something they want, like this mm-hmm. map of yours. Quite. So, so completely um, evil, and you don't really believe that until you've experienced it you don't believe somebody could actually be that evil until you've seen somebody do it right exactly so that's which is which is one of the appeals or one of the benefits i suppose of of being able to have a book like this a fantasy book like this where you can really see it pictured and portrayed in a way that's vivid and active in your mind so you can see just how evil and the consequences of that evil and that's one of the benefits of having like fiction it's just like you know we were talking about lord of the rings earlier when you really see uh, Lord Sauron and Saruman and the evil and the depths and Morgoth and the, and the, and the depths to which they'll go, it makes it more real. And, and, uh, and is in this, in this sense beneficial. It's not just pure escapism, mm-hmm. but actually means of learning to look and see the world and the wickedness in the world for what it is. Not only that, I mean, like Saruman, uh, here with Lord Burley, you kind of get the, imp- you know, you get the impression the man, he's not inhuman. Actually, the, mm. the, his his evil uh, desires, which are part of his humanity now, of course, uh, are are what drive him to do these evil things. He's mm-hmm. not just pure evil, you know, just this wicked character. But he actually um, is is a creation of his of his own. It's created out of his own desire. Sure. He's he's so his greed has driven him to the to the point of madness to get this skin map. Another step back, I did want to talk briefly about some of the things in the book that kind of annoyed me a bit at the beginning, and as I thought about it, mm-hmm. uh, it got a little less annoying once I realized kind of what the purpose of this book is. But uh, he spends a lot of time setting up the various worlds uh, that you see, 
like chapter six, for instance, the chapter where they go to, it's page 59 and following in the hardcover, if you have that. Um, and that's the book where they go to, or the, the chapter where they go to the inn, and he's just talking about the, the food. And basically the chapter has no purpose whatsoever, uh, except to talk about <laughs> life in the inn. And it seemed to me at first like it was just the author showing off the amount of research he did in in understanding these various historical uh, time periods. And the same thing with like some some of the chapters with Vel- Wilhelmina and Etzel when they're in in Prague and they're putting together their uh, their bakery and whatnot. And, and it seemed to me, what's the purpose of this book or this chapter? I mean, it's, it's just it's just him showing off his <laughs> his uh, research chops and how well he can do research in these various historical eras, but. I'm assuming that we'll come back to these periods, and and what he was doing here in this first book was giving us a vivid background against which the rest of the books will will come up. The other thing that was annoying and that I didn't actually get over, it's still annoying to me, is uh, authorial intrusion. Hmm. Uh, did you catch some of this? I mean, mm-hmm. he starts out the very first chapter with this. Uh, I mean, the, and if, it might even be the first line in the book, which was just awful. I mean, this is an awful way to start a book. So, so he starts off the first line of the book, page three. Had he but known that before the day was over, he would discover the hidden dimensions of the universe, Kit might have been better prepared. At least he would have brought an umbrella. What an awful beginning of a book. I disagree. The author's, huh? It's <laughs> I dis- awful. I disagree. And, and, but this also occurs in, in various other parts. In the, in the second book, I noted there was a couple times where, uh, I mean, it was just it was just uh, blatant in your face. You know, the the narrator is is becoming part of the story. And you know, this was this was typical in earlier areas of of writing. The the narrator would would become involved in the story, and the narrator was kind of like a character in the story. Uh, the author himself was a character mm-hmm. in the story. But it's not done often in, in modern writing, and I find it annoying when I read it. Well, I, uh, yeah, again, I, I mentioned this earlier, and I wonder uh, if it isn't just a genre thing that he's trying to emulate, because he does the same with his chapter titles. You know, they give the, it gives the conclusion of the chapter in the chapter title. Yeah, but it ends up it ends up becoming patronizing because uh, Tolkien did the same thing in The Hobbit, mm. uh, but he did it because it was a story written for li- young children. Like the, the Hobbit is really an episodic series, a story. Each chapter could right. almost be its own little story, and it was a story that he was that the stories a series of stories he told to his sons, and so they were kind of uh, not not in. In a negative sense, it was it was condescending. It was the father telling stories to his young boys, right? And that's kind of what it come how it comes across in, in in this story too. It's like you know uh, the author telling you how you're supposed to understand this part of the story, rather than actually just writing it and showing it. And maybe I'm just showing my bias and my you know. Uh, inability to understand good literature. I mean, and, and this is set in the context of I, I like the story. I, lo- I like the story a lot. Uh, I think it's a good story. And I've read a lot of Lawhead stuff. In fact, there's not much that he has written that I haven't read. Um, and I enjoy a good portion, uh, most of the stuff of his that I've read. Now, now, who do you Oops. think the audience is that he's in, he's writing this for? Is he writing it, uh, you know, this is one of our questions, is uh, book is art. It was, sure. he's, is he writing it to be just a good story and not really to be Age specific, or is he is he actually gearing this more towards a, a younger audience, perhaps? I certainly think he's gearing it towards a younger audience because a younger audience is going to be a little more familiar with some of these 
uh, various ideas regarding like physics and, and ley lines and that sort of a thing. Right. Uh, I also think, uh, I mean, the character ages uh, are are such that, I mean, I think they're both in their mid to late twenties or something along right. those lines. Right. Uh, and and they seem to kind of develop in ways, you know, I mean, uh, that uh, that would make sense for that sort of age range. Right. Well, there's some there's uh, some maturity developing in the characters, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. But they're right. they're just kind of going through the motions. The uh, the adolescent adult, both mm-hmm. both Kit and Wilhelmina, really, right? You know, they're really adolescent, and that they have to grow up. And and you know the other the the nonlinear uh, storyline, I think, is also certainly uh, more of a modern conception of of the novel too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you certainly wouldn't see that in the in the uh, you know ten years ago. It would have been odd, I think. So yeah, I definitely think a younger age, and you know, the, one of the nice things about uh, about Stephen R. Lawhead is all his stuff is very clean. Like I, my children, they can read all this. Uh, well, the Crusades were pretty bloody. the The mm-hmm. Celtic Crusade series was very, very bloody. Um, so I would recommend a, a you know, a and you have bit the older Im- age. You have the implied violence. Well, there's actual violence and some implied violence. The implied violence, the death of uh, Arthur uh, with the skin map, and then later on. Um, the attack at the at the one ley line uh, between the burly men and and the others. Well, I suppose the abuse of the uh, when they're captives at the end in Egypt as well. Yeah, but but for the most part, it's pretty. I mean, it, it's it's benign. Um, it's not. Entire, I, I mean, it's not very descriptive. No, it's not descriptive anyway. Right. right. You just know that they got hurt. Yeah, and I, and I wouldn't have any problem having my kids read this stuff so far. Um, I mean, it, there's a little bit more of a flirting with uh, paganism a bit, which is something you have to be careful a bit with Lawhead. If you've read Pytrek, Son of Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, he flirts a bit with paganism and Druidism, uh, it, both in that one and in um, the Arthur series, the Pendragon Cycle. Right. Uh, but again, that's contextual to, for that story. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't know how you, how you couldn't... Um, I mean, if you're going to be at all realistic, you know, to those characters, you're—I mean, they—you're going to use their approach to to paganism, right? Well, you're right. The, the difference is, and, I, and honestly, once again, uh, the Pendragon Cycle is a fantastic series of stories, and I enjoyed them very much. But in the end, he ends up marrying Druidism and, and Christianity. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the benefit of like when you're doing fantasy, doing fantasy like Lewis and Tolkien, where you're going to an entirely alternate, uh, right. You're yeah, a totally different story. You can create it from scratch, and so you don't have to worry about these blending of the very uh, of how do you work out this blending of Christianity and exactly. Yeah, here, I mean, all he can do uh, is refer refer to both myth. Uh, he refers to God. Some of the characters are believers; some aren't. You know, like Cosimo is, and Kit isn't his grandson. Um, and there is that bit. <laughs> there is that that visit to the church. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Well, and 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 it really at least has the sense that, that Cosimo, the great grandfather, is is trying to do some, you know, uh, he's trying to convert his his uh, great or great grandson. Uh, I mean, not not overtly, but the, there's that underlying theme that that eventually maybe he'll come around to to realize that there's more to the universe than just uh, a bare materialistic fact. The idea here is that. It's it's kind of like a Mormonism, you know. Christianity is true, but then there's a whole dimension to Christianity that hasn't been desc- or to 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 the world that Christianity doesn't describe, which are these ley lines and 
and mm. other things. So that you know, this could be revealed to us. And but, e- but even even more basic to our story, it's it's the like Newbegin says in in his book, uh, the the <clears throat> divide from from fa- of fact and value. Mm. Uh, such that people view the world of science and fact as the real world, but the world of religion is your own personal values, and and uh, the world of fact is where you go to to study real things, and the world of values is your own personal interior life, mm-hmm. uh, right? And, and that kind of gets to your to your point of of can the postmodern person uh, believe in the scriptures and what the scriptures say about God and what the scriptures say about the creation of the universe, the creation of the world? And hold to the scientific idea of string theory, yeah, because they've had this 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 divide between what they perceive as fact and 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 value, right? Am I making right. sense there? Yeah. Does the myth does myth always um, is it always imaginary, or does it have uh, as as Lord Burley says, you know, that myth has a, a the form around a kernel of hard truth? Well, and this is yeah, this is getting to the idea of C.S. Lewis that. Uh, regarding myth and and what is what is myth uh myth at least according to lewis and, and at least according to to burley as he's saying there is is myth needn't always be fiction right mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, there there is an american mythology regarding uh how the american uh, uh nation was founded and where it came from right and it's not all fiction right uh, there's some of it you know did did uh did uh, Washington really chop down the apple tree? Well, you know, who knows. Uh, but there are other elements of that story uh, of those myths that are that are true, in fact. And and this is getting to the point that C.S. What C.S. Lewis would make is that Christianity is the myth that becomes reality. So he would say, you you see these other pagan religions where there's a god that dies and then comes back to life. Well, he would say, of course. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you expect uh, something, somebody to emulate something that is true? The fact is that that myth became reality. It became true in Christianity. It became true in Jesus Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the true religion. That is the true myth. And that other myths are are, are derivations of this of this one this one true uh, core myth. Yeah. Now, now this, we got to be very clear. This is not you know mythology in the sense that that. Uh, like Rudolf Bultmann would call mythology, right? Hmm. Where he tries to demythologize the Bible and take out everything that's myth and that's and that story, right? But this is the exact opposite. It's actually saying that the, the scripture is in fact true and that all other stories are myths of this one story. So like the whole diluvian, you know, flood stories and all these other religions. Well, of course you would expect them because the flood actually happened, right? Right. Yeah, and that's and that's actually what what Burley is kind of onto here. Um, he's he's not a deist at all. He doesn't believe that there's a God. He's not actually concerned about that all that much. He just wants the well of souls. And, he, and, and maybe in that sense, he wants the well of souls to be his God, right? That's where he's sure. going to go and worship and then uh, and gain his judgment. And he does mention, just like you said, uh, that Jewish, Arab, Egyptian um, religions all had some variant of this well of souls mm-hmm. in, in their mythology. Which tell him that that that's the hard kernel of truth that's in the middle, um, but all this other all the other stuff attached to those uh, uh, to their mythologies is you know that's not true. And uh, Cosmo even says to him, "For the love of God, let us go." And Burley stops in mid step and turned around. There is no God, he said, his voice flat and hard. There is only chaos, chance and the immutable laws of nature. 
As men of science, I thought you would know that. In this world, as in all others, there is only the survival of the fittest. I am a survivor. He turned again, began walking, uh, walking away. You apparently are not. You are wrong, Cosimo called after him, utterly, fatally, and eternally wrong. If so, replied Burley, moving to the doorway, then God will save you. Have mercy, pleaded Sir Henry. Leave us with the water. Uh, so, so it's, you know, like you say, uh, he always flirts, flirts with paganism or he flirts with, with this scientific uh, worldview that isn't, I would say, ley lines probably are in opposition to Christianity or Christian worldview. But at the same time, his, <laughs> his antagonist uh, right. is, you know, the height of, of uh, the science of religion. Or religion of science, excuse me. You know, hard-boiled materialist. Yeah. Hard-boiled materialist. There's, everything's chaos, chance, uh, and, and the law of nature. It's survival yeah. of the fittest. It's evolutionary worldview. That's what he is. Right. And, and you've got Cosimo saying no. So, you know, you'd like to see some resolution to that in, in the broad context of this story. Right. Not, just, not just this book, but as the series goes on. Uh, you know, to get to the to the point they're all pursuing this well of souls, but actually, is that going to be a source of greater wisdom? You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think we'll see some resolution to it. Knowing, having read some of his other stuff, I think we'll see a good resolution to it. Right. To, to take this, I suppose, you know, we were talking a bit about diagnostic questions. Mm-hmm. Um, we, earlier in another episode, we talked about uh, one of our listeners gave us some feedback and suggested that what she is, has, uh, seen done is to ask the questions what's worth living for and what's worth dying for in this book um and i'm wondering if maybe we could do that as a diagnostic question so mm-hmm. uh thinking about the story uh thinking about the main characters uh, thinking about kit thinking about cosimo uh what's worth what's worth living for here in the story in arthur's case uh, arthur who bore the skin map on his own flash um flinders you know, petrie yeah arthur's flinders petrie he He's have a, has a conversation with uh, Anin, who's this priest for Pharaoh. We haven't talked about previously. Mm-hmm. Um, it, as as uh, what is it? Jean Lee is that how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. Jean Lee, who he's just married, <laughs> who's the daughter of the tattooist. Um, he, they're in Egypt, and she comes down with some you know Egyptian disease, uh, which happens when you go to foreign countries, by the way, and. You know, the, the, the priest says, um, no, excuse me, the physician who's attending the priest says, my father has seen this before. It is a fever which commonly afflicts children. I see, said Arthur, what can be done about it? It gives me no pleasure to tell you, my masters, but there is no cure. I am sorry. And then Arthur says, we just let nature take its course. No, that is not enough. And, you know, I was struck by that because I thought, well, you know, Arthur is, is suggesting that her life's not worth living. Um, or her life is more valuable than t- than to die having traveled across the ley line, visited this uh, this Chinese person visiting uh, ancient Egyptians, ancient Egyptians, as if now her life, you know, if it ended there, um, would not be valuable. And he's thinking selfishly, of course. So what's you know what's worth her? Li- well, no, actually, her life is more valuable than that mm-hmm. than to just die on their honeymoon, basically. Um. So that's one case. Now Arthur, I mean, he seems well, he wants to protect. He's he's just a traveler, right? Right, and, and for he's him, a, it really seems the traveling is what what he that's he lives what's for. living for. That's exactly right. right. Yeah, and, and to map out as much of this as he can, 
He's not really that concerned about the will of souls until she dies. Uh, it's not all that important to him. I mean, I, he well, kind of. I mean, because he he does he does talk about placing it in the center of every like it goes. It's the centermost piece, right? Right. Uh, it's the the centermost diagram that he writes, and it is the most important diagram. And he says something to that effect when he when he has the tattoo artist put it on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, even then, you're right. The, the, his primary focus is in mapping everything out and in traveling and, and recording all this on his on his skin. Right. Uh, let's see. What about Kit? Uh, you know, I think that's probably one of the problems with Kit is it doesn't really seem like he uh, has any reason to live. <laughs> right. Until until his until his until Cosmo dies. Right. Until Cosmo dies, also in Egypt, incidentally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is placed in the sarcophagus, and and now it's it's to continue his work, I suppose. Yeah, that's worth living for, or also to defend his honor. You know, to to have right. revenge uh, upon Lord Burley. Yeah, well, and and originally, like there was there was what really kind of started out Cosmos' tr- uh, adventure was the fact that he led Wilhelmina into another dimension. So the reason he finally decided to uh, to hook up with Cosmo and follow Cosmo's around because they had to uh, rescue Vil- Wilhelmina, right? That's, right? That was the whole purpose. Mm-hmm. But even then, like you said, throughout the entire story, especially when, when uh, uh, Lady Haven Faith, who we haven't really talked about yet, comes in, it's almost like Wilhelmina is for Kit, just kind of like a set, you know, uh, she isn't a, a driving motivation anymore. It's no. kind of, no. you know, so, so he really doesn't seem to have any motivation to live. You're right. Well, it's certainly at the at the right at the outset. I mean, his relationship with Wilhelmina is surface level at best. Um, he he seems to be sleepwalking, you know, through life mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. And so that's uh, gaining, you know, he's gaining meaning through this skill that he has to to travel the ley line, and then uh, also to find out that his grandfather was had similar skill. And uh, um, it seems to be that. Uh, Cosimo is very much like Arthur in that it's just it's just for the mm-hmm. love of the search and the you know the exploring and the exploring you know yeah. but but he also they also have a he also has a protective kind of uh, character to him. Um, you said that wasn't probably. I think you you note that it's not really all that necessary that they prevent the uh, the fire in London in 1666, right? Right. Well, well no, yeah, the, he has a protective sort of thing, where, so they have to be careful about what they change in, in the course of one of these various other omniverses. When, and this is where it becomes important to realize they're not really time-traveling, because they can change things in these other ver- uh, parallel universes without actually changing the track of the primary uh, mm-hmm. uh, line, right? The primary universe, you could say. Now, so if, they, if they're on the other line... And they make a change there. Does it affect all the other lines? I don't think so, but it would cause uh, multiple. It could cause multiple lines to split off from there. Do you see what I'm saying? It could become a juncture point where you then get right. There lines. was that discussion that there's always a there's always more than one possibility. Right, right, and and, and so and, and and so they do. They, they prevent the fire of 1666 in London, taking into account all these other various things. But if you think about it, it doesn't really matter whether or not they do it because they're creating an entirely new universe, mm-hmm. right, with an entirely different aspect to it, and it's not like they're really affecting the primary universe, right? Uh, the, the 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 central track, you might say, uh, of, yeah. of this universe. 
So moving back to uh, Kit and what, what's worth living for and what's mm-hmm. worth dying for uh, in the, in the second volume, you have the second volume, you're going to read it. Uh, it really develops his character a lot more and, and he becomes much more, um, uh, he much more dynamic of a character mm-hmm. range. Fleshy. In the second one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sean Lee, his, his wife. I mean, that's, we don't, she's a minor character, but for yeah. her, it's, it's, uh, she loves her life with her, with her family, her father, um, taking care of her father. But at the same time, you know, she has, she's willing to, to give all that up, you know, to be with Arthur. Yeah. What about Wilhelmina? Uh, that's a good question. You know, at the beginning, she didn't really have anything worth living for, you know, that's correct. she yeah. worked, she worked literally all day. Um, without much sleep he kind of describes her as as like a, a severely sleep deprived woman uh and and part of what kind of makes her um a cold person to be around right. uh, goes to bed at 8 and gets up at like 2 or something like that right. um, and pretty much works all day but at the end uh, she really learns to kind of in some sense live for Etzel right because they they become uh companions and she really guides that whole process of putting together that coffee house and and really you know kind of giving etzel uh hope and direction and 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 she really kind of steps into her element and then even especially when she as she begins to travel throughout the 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 omniverse and these various parallel universes mm-hmm. she gains uh what what's worth living for for her is is in some sense actually the exact opposite or the exact same thing that uh for Kit, you know, she lives to rescue Kit in some sense, at least. It, it appears to be at the end of the the first volume. Mm-hmm. But even then, at, at the end of the second volume, you're still not 100% clear what her purpose is in the story. Right. And, and what effect the, this, I mean, obviously the introduce, introduction of coffee prematurely uh, to Prague is going to have an effect, because she set up all these shipping routes to Prague then. Um <laughs> But once again, you have to remember this is a different. This is a parallel universe, so this isn't going to affect the mainstream of of history and the primary the the primary time. Are you confident right? in that? I am confident in that. Okay, so you know something I don't know. No, I, I don't. I'm, I'm just. I, I I feel it's the way that, or at least in the descriptions they were talking about. It did draw about the. Atten- it drew the attention of Lord Burley. Uh, yes, and it there, did. there is. That is correct. I mean, there is some mystery, at least in in this book, as to. How he knows, and it's mentioned a number of times in the context of the Burley men, how they know where to be at the, they seem to be at the right place at the right time. Great question. You'll find out in the next book. Right. So, um, he does, it does seem to draw his attention. Uh, you do mention, uh, it's worth mentioning because I, I made a note of it too, is that there are all these questers, um, who are the, the opposite of the Burley men, apparently, uh, but just mentioned once and then that's it. Uh, they totally fall off the face. Of the universe. I mean, we know we know that Sir Henry is one, and we know that uh, Cosmo is one. Uh, but then, apart from them, we don't really know. So that mm-hmm. that is curious. Uh, but the questers do seem to have uh, a different motive in mind as, mm-hmm. to, as to the purpose of this quest. It is just a mm-hmm. quest. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a, a search for knowledge and understanding, or or um, uh, to be messengers of, of a sort. Uh, mm-hmm. And you get that because, you know, it's interesting. We have two books in a row here where we have to talk about providence. Um, but the, if there's anything that, that's indicative of a God, uh, character of God, you know, acting within the story, it's, the, it's providence again. Which, uh, who talks about providence? 
I don't recall. Uh, yeah, there's there's an argument between Etzel and Wilhelmina, actually. Uh, Etzel, is that what it is? Yeah, Etzel, you know, he's the, oh, we didn't say this, he's the baker uh, that Wilhelmina hooks up with. Um, right. And ends up starting the coffee shop and the, well, the big not, not hooks up with. I think they remain, you know. Oh, yeah. We should be careful in making those. T- okay. <sighs> Whatever. She connects with him somehow. Um, and sh- she says, really, wondered Wilhelmina, what a coincidence. I am a baker, too. <laughs> Etzel turned on his seat and regarded her, his blue eyes wide with surprise above his chubby pink cheeks. There is no such thing as coincidence, Fräulein. I do not believe so. This is a mo- most fortuitous meeting. Fortuitous, she puzzled over the word. Fate, you mean? Fate, he said, as if the word itself were sour. His round, cheerful face scrunched up in thought. It is, he paused, then declared with a shout of triumph, Providence, yeah, it is providence that has brought us together. You see, I am a baker who needs a helper. Put his, his, placed his hand on his chest, and you are a baker in need of a friend, I think, and perhaps more. Uh, yes. So you have providence there, and then it comes in at the very end again. See, you're not paying attention here. You got to pay attention at the very end. Yeah, I was going to ask real quick. Did you read this on uh, Kindle? I did. Uh, I actually used iBooks this time, so I took notes in iBooks. It works just as well as the Kindle. Does it? Uh huh. I can tell because you you actually have things. Well, like I can't tell you what notes. page it's on because it depends on whether it's portrait or horizontal. <laughs> I wish. I wish. I wish. That's one th- feature I think they miss on these eBooks is they don't put in the physical page numbers. Um, well, and they said at one time Kindle was supposed to be able to do that, but I've never seen it. Mm-mm. Uh, so after all, uh, well, not after all is said and done, but fairly, fairly close to the end, um, Lady Faith, uh, who's Sir Henry's woman, daughter, no, da- uh, nephew, niece, niece. Yes, I get that right. Uh, they have they have his green book where he had been taking his notes in. Yes. Uh, and they open it up. Uh, and Kit thumbed to, the, to back a page in the little book. Listen to this, he said, and began to read aloud. Sir Henry writes, again, Sir Henry's the one that went to church. I hold two precepts absolute, that the universe was created to allow providence its expression, and therefore nothing happens beyond its purview. They glanced up to see his audience wholly puzzled by this nugget. Wait, there's more. Secondly, all was made for the benefit of each, man, woman, child, and beast, down to the curve of every wave and the flight of the lowliest insect. For if there is such a thing as providence, then everything is providential, and every act of providence is a special providence. He looked up again. Do you see? (laughs) A curious musing, perhaps, conceded Lady Faith. Yet I fail to see that it has anything to do with this particular undertaking before us, does it? (laughs) Anyway, no coincidence under heaven. Is his little squiggle on the right? Providence, not coincidence. So uh, the, he comes back to that theme, which is a—it's it, kind of an interesting theme because now we're getting into the origin of all these ley lines and why are they there and how do they work and do they work for the benefit of uh, of each person? Are they u- to be used for your benefit or are they actually um, used used by someone else to your benefit? Or yeah, yeah. They're they're at least he seems to be saying that God has placed them there for the benefit of mankind in some fashion or or another. Right, and that he uses them kind of as a not as a puppet master, but as uh, as his means of providence. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're meant to discover them, meant to use them, um, and to use them for the benefit. And they're not coincid. It's not coincidental, uh, but it's part of a design, if you like. Right. So I mean that worldview is present at least in 
in the in the questors, the faithful here in this book. I don't know if you caught this, uh, but the first thing that happens when they're we talked about the um uh preventing the Chicago fire. Did you yeah. notice? Did you notice what he did? It should sound familiar to you. Uh, it just so happens that I have that someone had talked about a particular parable of Jesus. <laughs> he wakes him up at the night and asks to buy bread. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's the friend at midnight. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> the friend at midnight uh what is you know, that? rescuing the entire city of London, right? <laughs> Isn't that something? That's good. Uh so he gives him but it's it's kind of I mean it's not exactly the same, but he gives him the or gets the loaf of bread from him, wakes him up. I wonder that, if it's intentional. Or if it was actually I can't help it. I mean, that parable um is kind of an enigmatic parable anyway. I mean, it has a sense of persistence about it. You should be persistent in your prayer, but mm-hmm. that's about as much meaning as you can get out of it. Um, although there are some theories because of the context. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. It was a friend at midnight yeah. right there. Very good. All right, so what are we doing next, Roy? Well, I, I want to recommend, actually, uh, for everybody, uh, do pick up the second volume in, in this book. Uh, it is The Bone House. Um, and I have read it. It is very good and uh, and does start to... Uh, it doesn't necessarily wrap anything up in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it adds more strands and, and more uh, more uh, threads to the story. Uh, but it, it, you start to get a little more explanation and actually delve more into the plot line and, and, uh, and start to kind of figure out what exactly is going on. So do pick it up. Give it a read. I think the next one's supposed to be coming out in... Is it one a year? Is that what he's doing? I think so. So, so it's so like we October, should be due pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. I think it's supposed to be coming out here pretty soon. Uh, the next month's books, uh, we're going to call them August's books. We're actually going to do two uh, because they're kind of uh, in parallel here. Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book and Neil Gaiman's uh, The uh, Graveyard Book. Uh, if you go to the website and and look at our schedule of upcoming books, you actually have two links there for the for the Jungle Book. Uh, I found the the first one I actually found earlier, and then I started looking for the Everyman edition, and I finally found the Everyman edition, and that's the second link. That's the one I purchased. So, um, but uh, both of those are fantastic books, and and the Jungle Book is actually, and I, I have never read the Jungle Book, so I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, but my understanding is it's actually a series of short stories. It's not even really a, mm-hmm. a, a single novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so uh, both of those we'll be reviewing next month. Uh, looking forward to that. It should be fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, if once again, if you have any recommendations for what we should do after August, please leave comments on our webpage. Do leave those comments if you, there's something in particular you'd like us to read next. Yeah, and if there's anything that would be uh, helpful for us to include in the show uh, to help you uh, in your reading, to prepare to, to hear the podcast, or uh, just to um, assist you in your literary pursuits, uh, do let us know. Well, that's all for this time. We'll see you again soon. Yep. Keep reading, my friends. So you can leave that in?